0: Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at Delap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. Welcome back to another episode. Taxable investors cannot afford to overlook an important fact. Wealth compounds after tax. Therefore, the only investment returns that really matter are after-tax returns because those are the only ones that you get to spend. According to the Tax Foundation, in 2019, the top 1% of taxpayers paid 38.8% of all federal income tax. Despite taxes generally being a high net worth investor's largest non-discretionary expense, They're rarely discussed in terms of portfolio design or performance reporting. The truth is, taxes can impact portfolios as much as returns or fees. To help us better understand the challenge and opportunities in this area, I'm joined today by a national thought leader on the topic, Nathan Sosner. Nathan is a principal at AQR, and his team oversees the design, implementation, and day-to-day portfolio management of tax-aware funds. His research on tax-aware investing has actually been published in the Financial Analyst Journal and the Journal of Wealth Management. He was actually a recipient of the 2020 Graham and Dodd Award from the Financial Analyst Journal for the very best paper of the year. Nathan earned a BA and MA in economics from Tel Aviv University and a PhD in economics from Harvard University. So without further ado, let's jump into today's conversation with Nathan Sosner of AQR. Nathan Sosner, I'm excited to have you on Success That Lasts and tackle this conversation about the importance of tax efficiency. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Jared. Before we jump into this, I'd like to kind of get the audience up to speed with who you are and who AQR is. So I usually like to start with what your professional background is and kind of what are some of the decisions that led you to the role that you're in today. So I have my PhD in economics.
1: Up until about seven years ago, I was focusing on quantitative investment strategies. Risk modeling, alpha modeling, portfolio construction, your typical quant package. In 2015, I started an effort here at AQR, which was focused on adopting AQR's investment approach to private wealth. Seven years and 15 papers later, we have now an array of interesting solutions, which range from tax-aware hedge funds to separately managed accounts to estate tax planning programs. All of that uses the quantitative background that AQR has. We're relying 100% and fully on AQR investment strategies to achieve all of these investment results and also the tax planning results. I was fortunate enough to see our private wealth transform from an idea about seven years ago to one of the key areas of the firm that we have now, I now manage an exceptionally talented research group, and we receive an enormous amount of support from
0: every other team in the firm.
1: That's how AQR.
0: That's really helpful. I'm familiar with AQR's investment approach and kind of what it means to be a quantitative investor, but I, I guess in layman terms, what would be a way to kind of describe the investment thesis and approach of AQR as it pertains to being a quantitative investment firm? So generally, AQR
1: is Mm styles-oriented. A lot of the investment strategies that we run can be described as some type of exposure to value, momentum, quality. And this is the type of strategies that we run in tax-aware investments as well. The main difference between tax-agnostic and tax-aware strategies at AQR is that in tax-aware funds, we not only think about investment as styles, but we also think about investments as individual tax results of trades. So as we're trying to deliver our investment thesis, again, oriented to value, momentum, and quality to our investors, we also being very focused on what is going to be the result of every single asset that we trade, or what is going to be the result of trading or not trading a particular asset, So everything is designed to maximize the after-tax benefit for a U.S. taxable investor.
0: Let's transition into that a little bit more. So you referenced some studies that you and the team have conducted over the time frame in which this team has been built. In the research that you've conducted to help quantify the economic value of income tax and estate tax integration, you found that prudent investing income tax efficiency in estate tax planning should work in harmony to produce the best results for the family. But how does one actually harmonize investing income tax planning in estate tax planning? So let me give you a simple example that doesn't even have to do
1: anything with AQR. So imagine an investor has an allocation to an equity index ETF and a money market ETF. Okay, so it seems to be a reasonably tax-efficient program or income tax-efficient program, but an investor can do better. So, for example, an investor can put the equity index ETF in a GRAT, and that GRAT can achieve some estate planning results. Now, the investor can also appreciate the fact that equity index ETF is a relatively volatile asset and also an asset which has daily liquidity and therefore daily markings. So that every day you have a valuation for the asset. As a result, that asset can, for example, be put in a very short-term grad, like a two-year grad, where it can be put in a rolling grad that is going to further maximize the state planning benefits of having an allocation to an equity index ETF and a muni-market ETF. But you can do even better, right? You can take your muni-market ETF, and you can use it every year to freeze your rolling equity index ETF grant, and therefore, Maximize the benefits of volatility of equity market on your estate planning program. So now you can see how everything begins to click together. You have a view on achieving a particular economic risk profile for a portfolio allocation. So you have allocated some to equity, some to fixed income. You've done it very tax efficiently. And through embedding the your investments in an estate planning program, for example, in our case using GRAT, you have also achieved some estate tax planning benefits. From here, you can progress further. right? You can say that alternatives can provide diversification to traditional asset classes. This is what we have been saying at AQR for the last 25 years. Alternative assets can provide good returns in markets when both equities and fixed income underperform, for example. Now, you can recognize that alternatives, for example, have very low correlation to traditional asset classes. And because of that, they can also be good alternatives or good instruments to add to your grad program. So in one grad, you can put your equity market index. In other grads, you can put alternatives. And you can not only maximize the benefits of volatility for estate tax planning, But you can also maximize the effects of low correlations between different investments to further maximize the state tax planning benefits. Now, you can say, well, alternatives might not necessarily be very tax efficient. And we can talk more about the tax efficiency or tax inefficiency of alternatives. But let's say you think that alternatives are relatively tax inefficient. Well, at AQR, we show that alternatives do not have to be tax inefficient. Or you can combine your tax inefficient alternatives. With some um, tax advantageous strategies, like loss harvesting strategies, that will make your entire portfolio more tax efficient. So now you have a package where all the pieces begin to click together. Your tax advantageous strategies will set the gains from your alternative strategies, making the income tax more beneficial for the investor at the level of the overall portfolio. And you also strategically located your assets in different estate planning vehicles to maximize the estate planning results. So what you achieve here is you have a program which is diversified, which makes sense economically, which is tax efficient, and which also gives you estate planning benefits.
0: Unbelievably helpful. So Nathan, when you and your team have looked at this and you have some research published around this, obviously facts and circumstances are going to be client specific. But in Broad terms, is there a framework that you guys utilize to kind of essentially quantify what the economic benefit would be to the integration of income tax planning and estate tax planning within a portfolio design? In a simple example that we used, and I can vouch for the fact that our
1: example is very, very simple because we are not using a lot of the techniques, for example, that rely on low correlations between alternatives and traditional asset classes. They would just say, look, imagine you're having a portfolio and you approach management of that portfolio in tax-efficient, income tax-efficient, and estate tax-efficient ways. If you run that portfolio for a reasonable amount of time for an investor, so for example, you started a program at the age of 40 and you continued until the age of 80, the after-tax wealth transferred to the family can be three times larger if you look to achieve tax efficiency and." sensible investment strategy across all the dimensions, as opposed to only focusing on investment strategy and completely ignoring the income and estate tax implications of your investment. So the difference can be as large over 40-year horizon as three times, and with more advanced techniques, it can be even greater.
0: Yeah, in very simplistic terms, wealth ends up being your income minus expenses, and tax expenses, arguably the largest non-discretionary expense a high net worth investor is subjected to. Yet it very rarely makes its way into the portfolio or investment strategy and design conversation, which was why I was so excited to talk to you today. There does also seem to be a high correlation of wealthy individuals. I think the Vanderbilts might have originally said concentration can create wealth, but it's diversification that preserves it. So it's common that successful investors or entrepreneurs often hold much of their wealth in a highly appreciated single stock, thereby face this complicated financial dilemma. On one hand, the volatility of a concentrated single stock can lead to significant risk of catastrophic loss. But on the other hand, selling that position results in an immediate and punitive tax burden. So as you've looked at this dilemma, what's the right framework to make an evidence-based decision? So- I'll make a general statement and then I will try to give an example
1: as to why a diversification is typically a good strategy. So, retrospectively, if you look at concentrated situations, concentrated stock situations, it does look like concentrated risk pays off big time. However, as a statistician, I can tell you that these observations evaluate it. What I mean by that is you hear a lot about successes. And the greater is the success, the more attention it gets. Failures, on the other hand, they just fade away and disappear from the view. So nobody talks about them. So when you look at the wealth created by concentrated risk, it looks like the wealth is great. But the problem for that is that you eliminate a very large portion of the distribution, which led to failure. Now, once you think about this, you say, okay, what should I do under this scenario? We feel like just this step of diversification itself, irrespective of potential tax burden, is super important. However, you can do even better if you achieve your diversification tax efficiently And in fact, we've published something on our website recently where we provide some ideas, some thoughts on what tax-efficient diversification of concentrated risk might entail. It's a relatively long piece. I think it can take a whole three to five minutes to read it. So I would reference interested listeners to check our website for that. Yeah, absolutely. We can link to it in the, in the show notes as well. The idea here is that a concentrated risk is a constraint for many investors. There are multiple constraints on the investor to diversify the concentrated risk. So this can be related to holding an interest in a private enterprise where it's not that easy to sell down or liquidate that risk. You can have restricted stock, you have headline risk of divestments by owners or senior managers at the firm. So typically, I think investors will be under-diversified than over-diversified. So based on that, I would say that at every opportunity, investors should seek an opportunity to diversify whatever portion of their concentrated investment they can diversify. And if they can do it tax efficiently, then that's possibly even better. But the main result is diversify, diversify, diversify the portion that you can. If I can give a simple example real quick as to why diversification is important, I think it can clarify as to why we're worried about the lack of diversification. For example, imagine that you have a a relatively diversified portfolio and that portfolio goes up by 20% in one year and then goes down by 10% the next year. So if you invest $100 in a portfolio like that, then the first year it goes up by 20%. So now the value of your investment is 120, then it goes down by 10%. So you're down to 108. Effectively, you made $8 over the course of two years, and the average return of that investment was 5%. Now, imagine you have a highly volatile and a highly concentrated position, which can go up 60% in the first year instead of 20, and down 50% the next year. So the average return of this investment is still five percent as before. But before that, we made eight dollars from our investment. Let's see what happens for the investment that goes up by 60 and then down by 50. So in the first year, it goes from 100 dollars to 160, and then it has a 50 percent drop. So now you lose 80 dollars. You only end up with 80 dollars. So although you had the same average return, the first investment gave you eight dollars of gains of benefit, while the other investment gave you $20 of losses. If you replay that over multiple periods, you can see that the wealth achieved with the latter more volatile strategy will begin to dwindle to zero relatively quickly. So in my recent paper, I show this more rigorously with some math, but this result is very, very general. And importantly, the theory that I propose in the paper has very strong empirical confirmation as well. There are some papers on the, that have been written recently that show that most of the wealth in the US stock market is created by a very small percentage of names. And a lot of names, majority of names, actually end up performing worse than the interest rate. So the risk of concentrated stock is exactly this. Volatility creates a significant drag on cumulative wealth and the only way to reduce that drag is to reduce the volatility through diversification.
0: Nathan, just to clarify, I've read a lot of that research in terms of the uh, small subset of stocks providing the, the vast majority of the market's return. I've read 4 to 8% of the individual companies provide the lion's share of the market return. Is that consistent with the studies and, and information that you've explored as well? If you take the
1: statistics that I develop in my paper, then you will come to a similar conclusion. You can effectively, using the, uh, the model and the assumptions in the paper, match the results that have been shown empirically. And those results, I agree with you, Jared, they have been shown by multiple people. Multiple people who looked at the data, they come to the same conclusion. And we also came to this similar conclusion. We didn't publish on this simply because they have a there is a lot of empirical work that has been done in the past. What I tried to do is to figure out statistically what this means and how you overcome these challenges. What do you need to do to overcome these difficulties? How do you model this without just staring at the data moments?
0: The results of that paper in the empirical datas that you reviewed, it implied that diversification was so critical that you would have been compensated, generally speaking, for enduring the tax expense up front to pursue the diversification. Is that correct? That depends on which statistic of your wealth distribution
1: you're mostly concerned about. If you are a risk-averse investor, and as an investor who is in the wealth preservation stage, most likely wealth distribution statistics like median or the mode of that distribution will be more important than the mean of that distribution. The mean of the distribution you can show this mathematically, becomes so unachievable over time because of the cumulative nature of the distribution that the likelihood of getting to the mean is effectively zero. However, if you're not a risk-averse investor, if you're a risk-neutral investor, then there is a possibility that you only care about that very large outlier where the mean lies, right? The outlier is in the right tail of the distribution where the mean is. And in that case, you might be very concerned about the tax liability because that is going to eat in the mean of your wealth. However, if you're an investor who is more risk-averse, for a more risk-averse investor, median and mode might be more important, and median and mode are being destroyed by volatility. So if you care about median and mode of your wealth distribution, then it might make sense for you to take the tax hit and reduce the volatility, And that is going to give a better result for you than waiting and sitting on your hands effectively, right? And taking, from a perspective of the median investor, taking the most risky strategy of not doing anything. It seems like not doing anything is a status quo uh, view, a status quo position. But in fact, if you care about wealth preservation, then not doing anything and sitting on your hands might be the most risky position that you could take.
0: That's helpful. So you've introduced an interesting kind of dilemma here that we all wrestle with when there's competing priorities. And so what we're talking a bit about is, is maximizing expected return, talking about risk management, and we're also kind of exploring active tax management. So have you found an effective thought process or framework to manage often these competing priorities? How do you think about it? As we just discussed, risk seems to be an important variable to worry about.
1: Fortunately, risk is also reasonably easy to predict or forecast with some degree of accuracy. The next thing that you might be worried about that is also predictable with some degree of accuracy is the tax burden of your investment or your overall situation, right? That can be your, your, your businesses that you have, your operating businesses, your investments as a whole, the tax drug can be significant. So there is a volatility drug There is a tax drug, and then there is the expected return from your investments, right? Everything that you hold, which generally is the hardest to predict. This result is a very general statistical result. Volatility is easier to predict. As you collect more data, you become better and better at volatility prediction. But expected returns are notoriously difficult to predict, and hence the relative efficiency of the markets. Taxes or something that can be managed to an extent because oftentimes decisions about taxes are made with the benefit of hindsight a simple example here would be if you want to liquidate a position do you liquidate the position before you held it for 365 days or after it can make a big difference on the tax line so the way to put everything together is to start with your risk variable and say i'm going to set my risk objectives for my overall investment strategy or investment portfolio. This is something that is to some extent predictable and relatively easy to control. There is a lot of risk models that you can purchase, commercial risk models that you can utilize in order to address, to model, and to manage the risk profile of your portfolio. Then you say, okay, well, I understand that now I handled the, the risk profile. Now I can focus on figuring out how do I run my portfolio tax efficiently, right? That's the second variable which is also reasonably predictable. At which point in time you can try to identify a more tax beneficial investments or a combination of investments. So combine your tax inefficient hedge fund with your loss harvesting strategy that can offset the gains from a hedge fund, for example, right, so you can think about the organization of your program. And then you try to figure out where you're going to get most of the expected return. So if you combine the three things together, what you get, is you can maximize your expected after-tax return per unit of risk. When we model our portfolios, when we run our tax-aware hedge fund, for example, what we focus on is we focus on how much after-tax return in expectation we can achieve at a given level of risk where the risk is managed to a specific target, the tax efficiency is addressed through a combination of instruments and trading strategies, And expected returns become somewhat aspirational in that case, informed by the past observation by past data, but expected return is always based on your expectations and your expectations can be off in either direction. Again, right, to restate what I was saying, a risk-adjusted after-tax returns should always be the objective. Some of the parts of this risk-adjusted after-tax return statements are easier to manage than the other ones. So focus on the ones that are easier to manage, tax efficiency and risk targets.
0: Nathan, you said something that I believe is true, but is often overlooked or not fully understood. You you said that risk is pretty easy to model or to manage to some extent. For an entrepreneur that's grown their company, a private company, and then sold it maybe to a public company and all of a sudden now has significant liquid net worth, I'm kind of reminded, I, I believe Daniel Kahneman referenced, familiarity breeds liking. So we often, outside of the academic conversation around investments, talk about investments in rather subjective terms. So in the landscape that you just described, investment risk and how it can be modeled out, I was curious if you could unpack that a little bit for us. That's a great question, Jared. So when I talk about predictability of risk, I'm talking about
1: predictability of risk of diversified portfolios. Idiosyncratic risk is notoriously difficult to predict. Completely agree with that. For diversified portfolio, there is a such thing as volatility clustering. So if volatility is high today, it's likely to be higher tomorrow. And commercial risk model providers, they build their business around this volatility clustering. High volatility today leads to a little bit higher volatility tomorrow. For a diversified portfolio, you can hit your risk targets with some degree of accuracy. And when I say degree of accuracy, if you predicted the risk of 10%, it can be 5%, it can be 15%. Most likely, it's not going to be 80%. You just don't have that accuracy with expected returns, which can be pretty much anything, irrespective of what you want them to be, irrespective of what your expectations are.
0: Excellent. You've spent a uh, significant amount of time here in recent years helping to build out this team and solutions for the tax-aware investor. But I don't read a lot about the after-tax risk-adjusted performance of of various strategies. And even from a performance reporting perspective, it's very difficult to report performance on an after-tax basis, obviously, because it's individual clients' facts and circumstances which would impact the net result of, of an investment. As you've immersed yourself in this space of after tax risk adjusted performance. Do you have any thoughts or ideas about why it's so rare to have that aspect of consideration discussed in the public venue?
1: So, based on our experience, and we produce after tax reporting for our hedge funds, tax aware hedge funds, on a monthly basis. You can see the pre tax return, the tax benefit or liability for a given month, and the after tax return as well. You can observe that on a monthly basis, and you can decompose where the tax benefit or liability in a given month is coming from, which characters lead to a particular tax benefit or liability result in a given month. So we went through this process, and from this experience, I can tell you that, especially for hedge funds, it's just hard. The organizations themselves, the asset managers, and the administrators, the tax administrators, are not necessarily designed to think about after-tax returns in this way, right? Such that every month, you can see the implications of your trading over the previous month. There is a lot of adjustments that need to be done. Typically, these adjustments are done on an annual basis. And in addition to that, you also need different teams to collaborate, both at the manager and at the tax administrator. So now team needs to speak with the tax team. They both need to figure out how to produce that reporting. There's different teams, different people, different skill sets. They can collaborate on an annual basis, on a very low frequency basis, when they produce K-1 reports, for example. But on a monthly basis, it's just hard to do. It's a lot of work and extra costs, both to the organization, again, and to the tax administrator. In addition to that, exactly as you mentioned, Jared, the... After tax reporting, it relies on a set of assumptions as to how you want to treat the tax outcomes. If you have a loss, for example, in a given month, like what do you do with that loss? They're going to assign a value to that loss. They're going to assume that that loss is carried forward. So all of this needs to be modeled almost by, you would say, a financial economist because the tax people, typical tax people will not do the modeling for you. They will think about the results of the tax reports when they try to fill out your tax returns. But they're not necessarily trying to model something out, to play something out going forward. This loss, it's never clear whether this loss that you have this month is going to persist through the next month, or this loss is going to be reversed next month. It's just hard to put together the skill sets and the knowledge of different administrations teams and modelers together to bring to a coherent representation of a tax result. Where this leads is, you just say, look, I'm going to report to you the thing that I know, which is changes in my nav. That's unarguable. I'm going to abstract away completely from the tax results. And in the March of the next year, I'm going to send the K ones and investors can do with that information, whatever they want. They can do their own modeling. Typically, it ends up in the investor's plate and investors saying, look, K-1s are hard. These different tax items have different implications. I don't know necessarily how to combine them with the pre-tax. And so it ends up being this black hole where nobody really looks at this with any level of intensity trying to figure out
0: how to use the information in the tax reports. That's helpful. Thank you. And I guess the kind of the final topic, a question I wanted to, to toss your ways while we're having this conversation in July of 2022, we're in the middle of a pretty choppy market. The last six months have been pretty difficult, but it, the prior 10 years was preceded by pretty spectacular stock market returns, especially domestically. And as clients begin to to make different decisions around investment management, maybe hire new advisors, you often inherit a, a very low tax basis portfolio. So from a tax-aware perspective, in terms of the transition and implementation, it often requires a complex, rather bespoke solution. And again, your experience, what are some of the important considerations to explore during those, those transitions from one advisor or one strategy to another? So in my view, and other people can think about this differently, but in my view, there are
1: four key parameters to changing a strategy, changing the portfolio tax efficiently. One is tracking error, the other one built-in gain, the third one is how much leverage you are willing to take, and the last one is time. So let me try to unpack that. For example, if you want to change a tracking error of your portfolio, so over time, as I mentioned, Jared, positions appreciated a lot, you didn't want to touch them in the past, and you accumulated some tracking error to your desired index. To change that portfolio, to reduce that tracking error, you will have to make a decision which is related to time. If you want to eliminate that tracking error or reduce that tracking error immediately in zero time, you're going to suffer a tax liability. And depending on the level of your built-in gain, that tax liability can be significant. So here you can see how the tracking error and built-in gain and the time begin to interact. If you allow yourself more time, there is a possibility that you will find some losses in your portfolio over time to offset some of the gains that you might recognize as you reposition your portfolio and reduce your tracking error more tax efficiently. But here, the time variable becomes critical. In some cases, if you want to reposition your portfolio, and this is the approach that we, that we advocate, uh, you can u- utilize leverage. And so here, the leverage becomes important. Why is leverage important? This is because if you have a portfolio where you can only buy stocks, where you can only have long positions, to reposition your portfolio, you have to sell some positions in order to acquire other ones. And again, depending on the level of built-in gains, you might suffer pretty large tax liability trying to reposition your portfolio, trying to change that tracking error. What leverage allows you to do, it allows you to use the positions that are already in the portfolio to create new positions. So for example, you have $100 worth of positions. You can create a portfolio which is $150 long and $50 short. When you create that portfolio, you create $100 of new positions, $50 of new long positions, and $50 of new short positions. So now not only have new positions in your portfolio where you can potentially harvest losses in the short term, which you couldn't do in the old positions that you had, right? Because all of those old positions might be heavily appreciated. You now have new opportunities. And not only that, you're facing both sides of the market. You have some new long positions and some new short positions. If market continues to go up, you can harvest losses on your shorts. If market goes down, you can harvest losses on your new longs. And those harvested losses can allow you to reposition the portfolio and sell some of the old appreciated positions tax efficiently. You realize the losses, you sell down some of the gains, the losses help offset the gains. So in principle, right, as we said, a few variables here, all of them are important, all of them, play a critical part in tax-efficient repositioning of your portfolio. I'll just, we'll re-summarize them again. The tracking error is important. The time, how quickly or you need to reduce that tracking error is important. The more time you have, the better from the perspective of tax efficiency. Built-in gain is important. The larger is the built-in gain, the harder it is to reposition in your portfolio. A new variable that we introduced at AQR is leverage. By allowing yourself to take more leverage, You can reposition your portfolio more tax efficiently by creating new positions, fresh positions in your portfolio, where you can potentially harvest losses as you try to sell out of the old appreciated positions.
0: Nathan, quick question, relative to the tracking error. So once you've identified, let's say I'm trying to track the Russell 1000, by introducing the leverage, the additional long and short exposure, are you introducing any additional tracking error or does that kind of get neutralized?
1: The tracking error generally gets neutralized because diversified portfolios are highly correlated. So it doesn't mm-hmm. matter what is the diversified portfolio that you create, it will be very highly correlated with some other diversified portfolio. So if you have a diversified portfolio of the longs, and even if your long portfolio is relatively concentrated, the, the old appreciated portfolio, you can create the diversifications through leverage. And here again, we're talking about how much leverage you're taking. So if the old portfolio had few names, was relatively concentrated. The more leverage you add, the more opportunities for diversification of that portfolio you have. And so now you have a relatively diversified long portfolio, relatively diversified short
0: portfolio. Those are highly correlated, and that doesn't lead to extra tracking error necessarily. Fantastic. Well, Nathan, I really appreciate our conversation today. I learned some stuff. I'm positive that our community learned a lot. And thank you so much for your generosity, both for your time, but all the knowledge that you've shared and published as it pertains to maximizing the risk-adjusted after-tax returns that are available to investors so i'll link to the studies that you talked about that are published on the on the website there at aqr and encourage our listeners to reach out if they have any questions that they wanted us to further explore on this topic so nathan thank you very much for our time thank you jared it was great and i hope we speak again